Hello, and welcome to the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast, brought to you by the North Carolina Sustainable Energy Association. I'm your host, Matt Abel. Hello, Squeaky Clean listeners. Welcome to the 72nd episode of the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast, where we bring you the latest in North Carolina clean energy news, policy, and more every two weeks. Before we talk about today's episode, I wanted to thank everyone for stepping up to the plate and responding to the ask of reviewing the podcast on the platforms that you listen in from. And for those of you who haven't done it yet, you know who you are. Give us a rating on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and the Google Play Store. It seriously helps us continue to grow and reach other listeners just like you. On today's episode, I am absolutely thrilled to bring you a conversation with the stalwart of the energy and utility ecosystem here in North Carolina. For quite some time, him and his team have been revered as nationwide leaders in offering cutting-edge clean energy and customer-focused programs for their member owners across their utility service territory. Before we talk to our guests, though, we have a few announcements to share. First is a big court ruling that transpired here in North Carolina at the tail end of last week. In this case, the North Carolina Supreme Court ruled in favor of a homeowner whose solar PV system was denied by their HOA through the Architectural Review Committee process. In this specific instance, the homeowner faced numerous fines and liens, which led to litigation that was appealed all the way to the North Carolina Supreme Court. In the ruling, the court interpreted North Carolina's 2007 Solar Access Law to mean that HOAs could not deny solar through their architectural review committee and must instead have covenants on the books that explicitly dictate the location of panels on the home. So, for HOAs that do not have covenants mentioning solar, they would have to propose new covenants requiring a vote from their board. In essence, this decision helps open the market for solar for many additional homeowners across the state of North Carolina. We'll include a link from some of the news stories from last week's ruling. In other news, a story from the Charlotte Business Journal highlighted the supply chain and international trade challenges hitting the utility-scale solar market, leaving a noticeable impact on contracted projects with Duke Energy. In this specific article, John Downey mentions that in the last tranche of Duke Energy's CPRE program, nearly 370 megawatts of projects were withdrawn due to price instability associated with trade and market dynamics. After those projects were withdrawn, Duke was left with just two projects at 155 megawatts. These developments raise some serious concerns about what may happen with Duke's next round of procurement directed under House Bill 951. Stay tuned as we'll be sure to share how Duke and other solar companies plan to proceed as this situation continues to play out. Lastly, NCSEA is hosting another edition of our Making Energy Network Policy Forum series leading up to our Making Energy Work conference coming up in the fall. This next event will be taking place on July 20th at Foothills Brewing in Winston-Salem and will be focused on the topic of the carbon plan. So heads up to all our listeners in the triad. We want to see you out at this event. It's a great way to network and meet your fellow clean energy professionals. Again, more info can be found on our website and via the link in the show notes. Okay, on to the show. For some time now, North Carolina has been able to lay claim to one of the more innovative utilities in the country, known for being ahead of the curve on offering programs designed to benefit their customers, both on the load and generation side, while looking at the customer experience from a very holistic perspective, not just exclusive to electricity. At NCSEA, 
We've highlighted some of their work previously as they've helped to spearhead programs like tariffed on-bill financing designed to help customers afford much-needed energy efficiency upgrades to their homes while seeing a monthly net savings on their utility bill. That model has since been adopted by numerous additional utilities across the country and is even now being piloted by Duke Energy here in North Carolina. On today's episode, I have the chance to sit down and talk with their new CEO and president about what it means to be customer-focused and where he envisions taking the utility in the future. Okay, and with that, let's get into today's episode. Clean energy. Our guest has served at Roanoke Electric Cooperative in Northeastern North Carolina for over 29 years and recently took the helm as the organization's president and CEO in December 2021. Prior to this new appointment, our guest served as the chief operating officer since 2014. While serving in this position and leading the organization's corporate strategy, Roanoke Electric was inducted into the Palladium Group's Hall of Fame for Executing Strategy. Our guest is a former board chair of the Carolina Small Business Development Fund. He was also appointed by Governor Roy Cooper in 2018 to serve on the state's Education and Workforce Innovation Commission. He is also a current member of the Duke Energy North Carolina State President's Advisory Council. Friends of the pod, please welcome Marshall Cherry, President and CEO of Roanoke Electric Cooperative. Marshall, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Matt. I look forward to today's conversation. Fantastic. So to kick things off, can you tell us a little bit more about Roanoke Electric Cooperative and the territory you serve in Northeastern North Carolina? Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, certainly uh, Roanoke Electric Cooperative, we're one of the state's electric distribution cooperatives, um, 26 of us in the state of North Carolina. We serve up here in the northeastern part of the state. We're actually touching seven counties here in the northeastern part of the state. And our territory lies you know, between uh, basically east of I-95 and south of the North Carolina-Virginia border. Uh, in a part of the state that I would like to uh, really tout is really known for agriculture, uh, of course, forestry, a lot of forest land here, and just the peaceful settings overall. Our service territory, uh, as we uh, capture all of the seven that I mentioned, uh, with actually is about a 1,500 square miles of, of service area. So it's one of the largest service territories, if you will, particularly among the state's uh, 26 electric cooperatives. But, you know, on the other end of that spectrum, Matt, we also have one of the lowest densities uh, among utilities in the state. Uh, of course, we serve about six meters for every mile of line. And, and with that, that's cost that we're passing on to our member owners. And so most of the counties also here in the northeastern part of the state or in our service territory are typically going to be on the least popular end of the statistics that lead to opportunities around wealth creation. And so we do have our challenges, but uh, we have a, a pretty robust strategy that we feel will help at least drive some of uh, the, the improvement of quality of life here in the region. So in your own personal exciting news, you recently took the helm as president and CEO of Roanoke Electric Cooperative after a successful tenure as chief operating officer with the co-op. So since taking this new role back in December, what strategies and programs have you prioritized for the cooperative moving forward? Absolutely. And I'm so honored uh, to to be the organization's leader. I feel uh, the beauty of serving as the chief operating officer for the eight years prior to me uh, stepping into this role has brought a lot of value in knowing the priorities uh, that have been set 
And a lot of these priorities, I, I admittedly have been set working shoulder to shoulder with my predecessor, Curtis Wynn. Uh, together, uh, we, and of course, with other staff members, uh, did an outstanding job. I feel we did an outstanding job over the past several years of setting up what we know today to be what we call Vision 2025. And, and I'm, I'm really elated um, of the timing of stepping into this role, given the infancy of the existing vision, which actually started, the clock started January 1st, 2022. And of course, December 31st, 2025, it will sunset. In, in this strategy, again, I said it's very robust, is but we do plan to accomplish many transformational and innovative initiatives that will address inequities. And that's a key word, um, it, particularly in this business model that we set. But the, we want to address the inequities that are prevalent in our region when it comes to managing energy costs, uh, particularly at the consumer level, while maintaining sound financials for the utility. And we feel that we can be successful in this vision as we continue to build, particularly on relationships through engagement with our member owners who are the very people we serve. And you've already instituted a lot of transformational and innovative initiatives through the co-op. Uh, leading to you know all of this recognition that you've you've garnered throughout the state of North Carolina and across the country as being one of the most innovative, forward-thinking cooperatives in this part of the country and just in the country in general. Uh, you know, you see your your co-op come up in uh, news at you know in the news or at conferences elsewhere. So, you know, what has really compelled Roanoke Electric Cooperative to be on the leading edge of innovation, and why do you think that you found yourself in this position? Great question, Matt. And certainly, uh, again, I'm new stepping into this role, but I feel that I was able to make a lot of impact serving in other capacities prior to becoming the CEO. And I do give uh, a lot of credit to my predecessor, as I mentioned earlier, Curtis, uh, with you know working together to set a vision years ago, but also being able to engage a team of individuals who work shoulder to shoulder as I served as the organization's chief operating officer. I can say personally that I was able to buy uh, into this work over the years, and, and I certainly look forward to elevating the same as the new leader because the work really, Matt, is people focused. In, in this case, the people are the very folks who we serve, which kind of sets cooperatives apart. So in a nutshell, I feel that we're kind of living out the principles of why cooperatives were started in the first place back in the 1930s. But acknowledging also that we serve one of the most economically distressed regions in the country uh, is our motivation also to make life better for others. We're not a growing region. And so our, our major thrust really as a utility is to avoid unnecessary expenses, particularly through capacity costs or needs to have available to us to deliver electricity through inefficient times. We want to be very flexible in how we use the grid and make sure that we can increase the utilization of the same. Fortunately, I will say in, in doing this, we, we have discovered a lot of opportunities uh, to be more efficient and cost-effective in our delivery of the service, thus passing on savings to our member owners and, and of course, still strengthening the bottom line. So I, I would just say in, in answering that last question, finding ourselves in that position, our motivations are pure. Uh, we have the people at heart with everything that we do. We feel that we are, we have been and will continue to do the right things for the right reasons. 
And with that, obviously, comes the success of people acknowledging the same. And so we're very grateful for all of the accolades that we've achieved over the years. But really, in its purest form, we're really motivated by the people. And when we can run into member owners who, who allow us to earn their trust, earn uh, our, the ability to engage them to help us make life better for them by maybe deploying a device in their home that can reduce costs for them and the utility, we're winning. And I can attest, uh, Roanoke Electric Cooperative is very people-focused, especially with all of the very innovative programs that you've rolled out to date with your member owners in mind and how you you know, better their livelihoods within your territory. And I think, you know, with that, that sort of focus, you've kind of gone above and beyond the traditional calling of a electric utility in a rural part of the state. And, and we'll talk about, you know, some of the other programs and initiatives, even outside of delivering just traditional electricity to customers that Roanoke has ventured into. But Let's talk about some of those people-focused programs that you've already rolled out that gives you so much of these accolades that are well-deserved. Uh, so what are some of those programs that Roanoke offers to its customers that have been successful in addressing some of the energy burden challenges that you've mentioned before? And can you also talk about some of the recently rolled out programs and future programs that you may be offering customers in, in the near future? Right. Absolutely. Great, great question. And, and there's a term that you mentioned in the question that I've really learned um, over the years. When you when you mention energy burden, that is real, right? That's a real term. And I believe that percentage is somewhere around about six, maybe 6% of your household budget. If more of that is going toward energy costs, then you're living in energy burden or energy poverty. Well, given the area that we're in, certainly we have a lot of uh, of our population who is on the low income end, we know that we do have to deal with that. And so it's it's really all about the, per- the perception of cost more so than the rates is the way we see it. And so we realize that there are costs that we have to pass along because I laid out the stats around all the capital outlay. But our, our challenge is working with our member owners to work together to reduce uh, their utilization of it during particularly times where it will help us most uh, as an organization. And so one of our programs that has really gained a lot of traction over the years is the program uh, that we call Upgrade to Save. And this is a a tariff-owned financing program, or to be, I guess, clearer, it's a site-specific utility investment program. It's not an investment um, in the facility dweller, but it is an investment in the the facility that the individual is actually living in or the occupant. So we're not really going after loans. We're looking at homes and we're determining whether or not that home can can withstand a 10 to 12 year recovery period of investment because we are recovering from the occupant who's living in the house at that time. We feel that this program really has lifted more inclusion in the energy efficiency financing uh, space, ensuring that capital is available to more ratepayers. We, we've seen a lot. We've actually managed a lot of iterations of energy efficiency programs or financing programs over the years. But I, I would just say I don't think we really saw the impact because we were still in the same cycle of dealing with a lot of the same people who were calling us uh, due to high, high bill complaints. 
And so this this Upgrade to Save program has been the response for us that has really relieved a lot of folks because we have a much more solid solution than we've ever presented in the past. And I, and I feel that the key to success in, in a program like an Upgrade to Save, a tariff on bill financing program, really can be couched uh, under three pillars. And these three pillars are this, is the capital number one. As a utility, we do have access to capital. We are an electric co-op. We borrow money from uh, the U.S., from the federal government. A lot of our funds come from the government that we borrow. We repay through the rural utility service. And there are programs couched under the RUS or utility service program that makes it easier for cooperatives to, to deploy this type of capital. So we have that available to us. The recovery number two is very important. And we actually established what's called a tariff. Um, again, that's paid by the occupant of the dwelling. And, and that is recovered until the in, entire investment that we have issued into that home is repaid back to the utility. And that's the part that really breaks down a lot of the barriers because we're not requesting folks to run credit. Uh, we don't have uh, landlords who are hesitant because they don't want to make an investment at the home. We would do it for them and we would recover, of course, through the power bill. And then the third leg or the third pillar that really makes this program successful is what we call the pay-as-you-save model. So with this pay-as-you-save model, the, the participant is actually cash flow positive day one after the investment because what's crucial to us is to make sure that we only make investments when, when we are able to recover, but when that recovery period or that tariff or the amount that we're recovering is less than the projected savings that that home should produce as a result of the retrofit. And really, our, our magic number is 80%. So if if a home is going to, uh, let's just say, there'll be about an average of $50 per month in savings in a home because we, we were able to make such an investment, we don't want that tariff to be more than $40. And so we're very specific about that, and we go through a pretty rigorous energy auditing program that allows us to come to those numbers. Another program that we launched uh, many years ago, kind of close to the same time, was um, we were one of the first cooperatives in the state, along with about two or three others, to be a part of an initial tranche of co-ops who participated in a community solar program. And of course, through community solar, this, this, uh, this asset is available for a collective group of a uh, body of individuals to actually be a part of the capital stack. Well, a lot of the, the financing was actually uh, done on our behalf. It was taken care of on, on our behalf, you know, by some tax equity investors. But the solar garden that we have right here on our campus is available or has been available for our member owners for years to, to invest and, and subscribe to panels and receive credits back. One thing that we did learn as a result of that is many of our member owners are, are more motivated, of course, by the economics, not necessarily uh, the sustainability aspect of it. Because, again, if you're in energy burden, you're trying to figure out where should your dollars go. So we've been I feel that we've done a great job over the years of working with some philanthropic partners who have helped us build, at the very least, a, a, a model that engages low income member owners into solar. And so as we've done that, we're able to sponsor some of the subscriptions of these panels of solar 
and making them available to individuals. And the individuals who we're actually granting these credits to are individuals who are on kind of on the more severe end of energy burden. Because as great as that upgrade to safe program is that I mentioned, we have found in our region, I mean, certainly we knew that there were some housing challenges, but we learned that about one out of every two homes that we would go out to visit had an urgent repair need. So as a result of that, now in addition to, well, before we can even do weatherization or heat pumps, through the, which really are, are a part of the Upgrade Safe program, we're actually taking care of a roof. And then once we can clear an issue of an urgent repair, perhaps to upgrade a roof, now we can move that home into an Upgrade to Safe program. So the dollars are sponsoring the subscriptions to these panels that are granting credits to these individuals. These credits will offset an additional investment we need to make into the home so that we can clear that urgent repair need. And ultimately, that home is now in the program where we need it, the Upgrade to Save program. That's incredible. I honestly didn't know about that last piece in which uh, different blocks or subscriptions were being sponsored and granted to member owners within your community. So not only are you helping to reduce their energy bills through tariff on-bill programs, but at the same time, you're investing in those member owners with renewable energy through your community solar program. So they're more dependent on clean energy sources while reducing their bill. What an incredible story uh, to tell about what's going on within your service territory. So uh, to the to the latter question, um, what are some of the programs that are on the horizon that you've either recently rolled out or are thinking about rolling out in the very near future? Yeah, and another one that's actually coming online here very soon, we, we have been pretty active in, of course, adding more capacity beyond if the solar footprint that we currently have. The solar footprint that we currently have is right here on our campus, and that's the solar capacity by and large that's being made available to provide these, we call it solar share credits uh, to address the urgent repair needs. But we, we have uh, three solar plus battery storage sites that we plan to bring online. And we're very hopeful that we should be able to do that by the end of this year. We've been working through some permitting uh, components with some of the local county governments to actually get over this last hurdle. But we're right here, clo close enough to it, in the red zone, close. So I'm hoping that we'll be able to have that completed by the end of the year. But actually, that's going to give us more capacity to do more in that space. But it, it will also address some of the things that we will see in the future as we continue to build on Vision 2025 that, that will give us some of the resiliency that we're looking for and additional distributed generation and some renewable resources that can provide uh, some assistance in ensuring that we're flexible again in utilization of the grid and using cleaner sources. And it, and it really um, also kind of very closely aligns with, with our wholesale supplier. Uh, I didn't mention that earlier, but we are part of the North Carolina Electric Membership Corporation Network. And collectively with our other cooperatives, we're actually working on a Brighter Future Energy campaign that actually brings us to a point where we are planning to be uh, at around about net zero in 2050. And there's a plan that will help get us there, but these types of programs will be a big part of it because cooperatives are very nimble. Another one that we launched back in 2019, prior to the pandemic, uh, when the pandemic broke, was we started a, a electric vehicle home charging pilot program. One thing we've learned 
in in this program, this word equity is so huge, Matt. It's very huge in this energy space. And, you know, even going back to my earlier points about member owners who are in inefficient housing, what we've learned is many of them have been some of the highest contributors to our capacity costs. That's waste. So the more we can address some of those housing issues, it also helps us address a business need. Now, on this electric vehicle front, we know and I know, you know, given the business that you're in, that the total cost of ownership certainly makes the business case for any individual right to uh, purchase and subscribe to an electric vehicle we have even also in addition to that because we we want to make sure that we can throttle or dial down the level two charge in that specific times so that individuals are not contributing to our peak we will and the value of that if we are successful in our member owners participating in our program the value of them charging at level one only during peak periods actually gives us the ability to cover the expense of installing the charger, the installation cost, the labor, everything all inclusive. But in addition to that, we have a in our subscription rate that we've created, we we're given a discount on the first 450 kilowatt hours that an individual would actually contribute to EV charging. And that 450 kilowatt hour equates to about 1500 miles a month in driving, EV driving, right? And so that so there's a break on the energy cost, but anything above that, they will revert to our typical rate. And so we've created, we feel a great program, but this education aspect, again, when we talk about the inequities in this region, we definitely have a gulf that we're trying to overcome to ensure that the education is intact, but also uh, helping individuals build capacity to be able to to be comfortable with that investment. So we, we again, through some great support of uh, philanthropic partners, uh, have some dollars available to us where we're uh, actually providing some additional rebates on purchases for electric vehicles. And, and of course, one other thing I'm, I'm kind of picking up is our need to work toward closing, I would call it the EV desert or public charging gap here in Northeast and North Carolina. Because if you look at an, an electric vehicle public charging map, you will not see many in the counties that we do serve. And, you know, I think you're you're ahead of the curve here, recognizing what's coming within the industry, right? It's, you know, one, it's an opportunity for growth with, with utilities, but, but two, I mean, electric vehicles are coming. And I just saw a statistic the other day that 7% of all new vehicle purchases in North Carolina were EVs. Uh, just recently. And at the same time, just a few days ago, uh, Chevy just announced that their 2023 Bolt is going to be MSRP'd at $26,000. So the price of vehicles are coming down. At the same time, utilities like yourselves are offering these incredible incentives to encourage customers to move in that direction. You know, one thing I wanted to hit on when it comes to EVs, Roanoke's in a unique position where you serve, you know, member owners through this wide swath of territory, but you also uh, cover a lot of customers that are in transit via I-95 going through North Carolina on their way down or up the coast. And you've also implemented some solutions for those customers as well as they travel through this part of the state as it relates to EV charging. Can you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. Last year, as a matter of fact, uh, we, we were able to install 
one one of our first uh, level three or DC fast charger over in the wrong rapids area, Interstate I ninety five certainly is an area where there's a there's a high traffic area, and so we did that uh, last year using a solution uh, that ensured that we could uh, tap into uh, single phase power but and deliver DC fast charging uh, with with single phase power using a solution that could convert it through what's called a variable frequency drive. But nevertheless, we've made that case. And we we did this about a year ago where we established and set up two of them. What we have learned, Matt, and a lot of times we, we can, I guess, we can attribute that, um, you know, folks like the Elon Musk of the world probably is going to have a lot more data available to him to make a decision, probably more so than a Roanoke. But since we have done that at that same location, there are now uh, 12 public uh, public chargers, Tesla chargers at that location. So I found that very interesting uh, that he evidently there's something to this, right? Because he doesn't just make these decisions just to be making them. But we will be moving actually one of our chargers to another area, uh, part of our service territory, because we, we see it as well. We, we have I-95 and that's we know that's going to be a high traffic area. But we also have some U.S. highways in our service territory that should bode well. We're working with some folks to help us with some studies on how we actually uh, add more and deepen the public charging options through level three here in our region. That's great. And I was, I was out at that ribbon cutting event for the, the charger last year and it's incredible. Um, and I believe it was part of the, the charge point charging network. So easily accessible for anybody that drives an EV. Um, so if you haven't had a chance to, to check out the press release that you all issued on that charging station or, having gone out there to, to charge. Uh, you guys obviously were a trendsetter uh, starting starting the trend in which other charging stations have followed, uh, which is great news for anybody driving an electric vehicle up and down the East Coast. So Roanoke also goes above and beyond just serving as a traditional electric utility, as we mentioned a little bit before. You're also well integrated into the community with initiatives like the Roanoke Center, Sustainable Forestry, and offering other services like broadband that integrate into the electric side of the business. So can you talk about the impact these programs have had within your community in Northeastern North Carolina? Yes, absolutely. And, and interesting, Matt, but you know, concern for community is actually one of the seven founding principles of the cooperative business model. And this is a model that has been around over 175 years. So it certainly holds true, this, this type of model, business model co-ops. Um, and so we know it holds true for electric cooperatives as well, because we are major parts of our communities. And so what we did about 20 years ago, was we started a nonprofit affiliate company. And the brand is, of course, is known as the Ronald Center. The Ronald Center gives us uh, an opportunity to expand some of our internal efforts to promote uh, economic and community development by leveraging grant dollars that are available to us as a 501c3. We, we have offered through this program or through the nonprofit, which is located in Rich Square. We have a physical building right there in Rich Square, North Carolina, which is the former campus of Roanoke Electric Cooperative. But we offer many services and we've done so over the years to include you know, technology training. It, it's really there's a lot um, of, of focus on technology when we think about our work uh, at the Roanoke Center. We we've we actually manage or still do manage a public internet access site, which is something that we did in the early 2000s, late 90s, 
when we were the conversation around internet uh, addressing economic development was was really coming to bear. And that's been available for many years. And I also kind of think of when I think about the Roanoke Center, it does put me in the mind of a small business incubator because we have team members there who will assist. Um, Actually, we have we have rental space available for some small businesses as well. One of the leading uh, initiatives, uh, particularly at this moment, that the Roanoke Center has been, has been managing is what we call the Sustainable Forestry and Land Retention Project. Uh, this project has addressed forestry land loss in our region, particularly in the African-American community. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, our, our region is rich with forest land, and, and the program demonstrates through the use of sustainable forest management that land is and can be a performing asset. A, a key contributor to, to economic development, as you mentioned, all of these areas, though, is broadband. And I talked about the internet access site and things like that and broadband connectivity. We, we even at Roanoke, actually, we built a, back, a fiber backbone several years ago uh, with um, the intention to engage an incumbent provider of internet services to deliver last mile solutions in our region. I, I will admit we weren't very successful in, in being able to do so. So what we decided to do was start our own for-profit subsidiary that will provide those solutions. And so today we actually manage uh, a business called Ronald Connect Holdings, who's providing, uh, you know, providing last mile broadband connectivity in our region. So let's talk about that a little bit more. So why did Roanoke venture into this space and what additional benefits does broadband connectivity and high-speed internet offer to member owners and to the utility itself? And I think, you know, a lot of folks might, you know, immediately start thinking of the, the digital divide that you hear so much about between rural and urban communities across the state in, in terms of access to high-speed internet and access to additional economic opportunities, as you alluded to. So tell us a little bit more about Roanoke Connect and what benefits it's brought to your community. Absolutely. There, Matt, there are so many benefits to having accessible broadband connectivity uh, as a utility. First and foremost, we've been in business for over 80 years. The needs are greater and greater, and there are more demands for data and communication needs for at least 10 years or more into the future, and, and probably you know greater than the future future of, of data that, that we need. But but broadband really moves us toward a smarter grid. You heard me earlier talk about Vision 2025, and broadband will be a key contributor to us being able to do so because it's going to take the communication. It's one that is two-way. When we think about a smarter grid, um, that's networked and also distributed. So when, when we built, as I mentioned earlier, you know the 200 miles of fiber many years ago, we did it for this reason, actually, to really improve our operation. Uh, we were able to connect all of our substations uh, to communicate one with another, transmit data more timely, submit billing information back, meter reading information back that allows us to better manage consumption with member owners. And, and so that, that just brought a lot of benefit there. But, but this, this effort certainly has expanded to extending this network all the way to the last mile, as I mentioned. By us being able to do this, we, we have been able to leverage you know, this effort by encouraging member owners to install Wi-Fi enabled devices or smart thermostats behind the meter 
and do other things like uh, award, add a water heater control device. And, and this really yields results for the member owner and the cooperative because we're avoiding, again, the additional capacity costs. We're able to pass through some savings to the member owner. And also they're uh, experiencing some energy efficiency savings as well. But that avoided capacity cost is more than compensating for any losses on energy efficiency. And, and so EV charging, um, it, it, we will should have the ability to save the cost of, a, of adding additional facilities to manage such. Um, these EV chargers uh, are some of the going to be some of the largest appliances, if you will, in an individual's home. But the, the charge itself, we should be able to communicate with it um, in the cloud and manage the reads, manage even the, the throttling that we need to ensure that we're avoiding their capacity um, and meeting our needs and covenants around costs and just smart appliances and things of that nature. But you mentioned it in addition to that. It's just great too. I mean, certainly for the co-op, for our member owners, but the community who will have individuals with more uh, access. Um, of course, with that, I, you know, I'm, I'm a believer, and I know many do believe the same that this will certainly contribute toward economic development here in our region. Yeah, and you know, especially in today's day and age, where there are so many economic opportunities remote and access to telehealth, which I know is especially important. In uh, places like Northeastern North Carolina, where access to uh, you know medical facilities can be challenging at times, so just overall having access to high speed internet just helps with quality of life. And so it's you know it's great to see that Roanoke is looking at it from this comprehensive perspective of how we help our member owners not only from the electric utility side but in all aspects of their life. So. What's next for the utility? Where do you foresee the biggest opportunities for innovation moving forward? Great question. And I, I want to say overall, Matt, I, I, I want us to, I feel that we have an opportunity to improve um, in this data space, particularly in, in, in data-driven decision-making. And this will allow us to substantiate some of our investments in this work that we're doing in Vision 2025, but also the measurement and verification is going to be paramount as well. And, and data, again, and of course, broadband is going to help us with such. We, we do have some opportunities as well now that you know, we're continuing to build on this fiber and extending more of our fiber uh, opportunities to improve our system. So there'll be some system improvements that will include some programs, again, that will support our ability to avoid capacity costs like conservation voltage reduction across the system, some substation automation, as well as uh, you know improvement on fault locations and just overall lifting um, these systems that will help us monitor the devices that's on our entire electric network. We, we did complete a second generation of an automated metering project, which has yielded some efficiencies. And of course, we have uh, plans to do more with this technology because this is going to set the stage for us to continue to improve in how we manage data for uh, our system and our member owners. We're, we're certainly looking at other uh, components. I mean, you've heard me talk about a lot of things behind the meter. Again, on the system, there are some other areas. Talk about solar plus battery storage. We certainly have some opportunities for some standalone storage. Um, those are things that we're exploring. Uh, also, I want to see us really do more, continue to lift this whole conversation around electric vehicles. I mentioned that we're really not growing, but electric vehicles really can be a path toward us adding more load 
to our system. And when we're smart about when we contribute that load to the system, it really makes our organization more efficient and we're selling more kilowatt hour and we're smart about when we sell these kilowatt hour. Um, I did talk earlier about fast charging options and public charging options. Definitely have that in in, in our space that we want to do over the next several years. Uh, we're getting close to finalizing a partnership with one of our school systems to add some electric buses to their fleet. And I do look forward to more of those types of conversations. I think that ultimately that can help us lead to more around what we know to be a vehicle to everywhere or vehicle to grid. We did do a vehicle to grid pilot uh, for about a year. It was a year long pilot. And we learned a lot of things through that pilot. Whereas the, the, the vehicle's battery can actually push power back to the grid and, and again, give us the flexibility that we need to support what, what our, our options are with Vision 2025. So we're going to explore that some more as well. And just overall, we're going to continue our efforts uh, because the, the current efforts have in, in our uh, tracking and measurement of the work that we have done has allowed us to displace roughly about three megawatts of capacity. Um, during peak periods, which is great. And so I, I feel that we have an opportunity to at least double that. And that will get us into a good place in terms of being more flexible and, and increasing our load factor. And just really overall, the final thing I'll say, you know, the communications around all this is going to be important, right, Matt? I mean, we have some ambitious targets that we have to achieve. We're, we're trying to, to uh, engage a community. We even working internally because we're adding, you know, different business lines, a, a broadband business, but we're doing a branding effort, which is, is really kicking off right now. And I'm excited about that to mesh the electric co-op with uh, the work that we're going to do through our broadband subsidiary, Ronald Connect. Well, Marshall, you, you certainly have your work cut out for you over the next couple of years, but um, you know, if, if history is any indication, I think you were up for the challenge and I'm, I'm really excited to continue to follow all of these new and innovative projects that Roanoke Electric Cooperative continues to roll out and for you all to continue to be a national leader in this space and, you know, a, a cooperative and a utility that, you know, many are very proud to have here in our backyard in North Carolina. So, um, you know, I, I, I commend you for all of the hard work that you all have put in thus far to reaching this point. And really appreciate you taking the time to, to join us on the podcast today to talk about the cooperative and what you have coming up in the future. So, Marshall, thank you again so much for joining us on this episode of the podcast. Thank you, Matt. This, this has been great. And I'm, I'm very grateful to inherit such a great team here as well at Ronald Fletcher to help stand up all this work. My key takeaway from today's episode is the fact that utility and customer interests do not have to be at odds. And in fact, Roanoke Electric is a shining example of how those interests can be aligned to enable a better quality of life for low and moderate income consumers while advancing opportunities for growth for the utility. We heard just that with programs like their EV offerings that help to reduce the upfront cost of the vehicles and charging infrastructure, enabling the customer to take advantage of the overall lower total cost of ownership while providing an area of load growth for the utility. There are countless other examples that we can point to with Roanoke that they offer their member owners in Northeastern North Carolina. So if you haven't had a chance to make it up to visit our friends in Allander, I'd highly recommend you check it out or even stop by their EV fast chargers off of I-95 over in Halifax, North Carolina. And you know the deal. 
Let's stay in touch on Twitter. Give me a shout at Matt Abel for future episode ideas, questions for our next episode, thoughts on today's episode, and your worst energy joke one-liners. And episode 72 of the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast is in the books. But before you leave, don't forget to rate, subscribe, and share the pod on whatever platform you're listening in from. Sharing this podcast with your network and growing the friends of the pod helps us get just a little bit closer to our shared vision of a clean energy economy for North Carolina. All right, that's it. See y'all later.